TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Pull up a rock by the campfire. It's time for that paleo show with your hosts, Sarah Stewart, Steve Hayter, and the man with no shoes, Brett Hill. Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Sarah Stewart. I'm Steve Hayter. And I'm Brett Hill. Today's guest has so much awesome on offer that I don't want to waste a second of our time with her. So to all of our listeners, I know that sometimes getting your head around all of the ins and outs of autoimmune disease can be harder than trying to rummage your way through a a target clearance rack uh, trying to find the bargain. So today we've got you covered. Uh, no hardships in store. So our guest is well and truly qualified to walk us through all of the nitty gritty we can throw at her. Sarah Ballantyne has so many tools in her kit, but formerly she is a scientist turned stay-at-home mum. She writes the award-winning blog, The Paleo Mum, is a co-host on the Paleo View podcast, and is author of some of the best paleo resources available, including what we think is the ultimate guide for anyone living with an autoimmune disease. Like many of our guests, she is passionate about the impact nutrition and lifestyle have on health. Uh, She enjoys cooking and is passionate about raising her family. We think she's an all-round superstar and we're not alone in this sentiment. Rob Wolf describes her latest book, The Paleo Approach, as a game changer. We love Sarah because she embodies our goal of making paleo something that everyone can understand in a way that allows us to improve our own lives and the lives of our loved ones. As comprehensive and wonderfully detailed as her book is, Sarah ensures that we don't suffer from information overload, and in what I'm sure was actually a truckload of work, she manages to explain complex scientific concepts in a way that seems effortless. She makes everything super easy to understand without watering it down, and I promise you'll actually feel like a bit of a smart cookie when you read her work, because she just makes sure you get it. So get ready, get excited, you're going to get blasted with all the awesome you can handle today. Welcome to the show, the paleo mum, Sarah Ballantyne. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. That was the best introduction ever. (laughs) You are more than welcome, Sarah. We're so thrilled to have you on board. Um, We know that uh, you uh, have had a highly awarded and amazing academic career, um, winning many significant accolades, and you're still very much a major influence in that field today. Can you perhaps kick us off by um, telling us a little bit about how you discovered paleo and also about your transition from academic through to um, becoming the paleo mum? Sure. So my discovery of paleo was my own personal health battles. And it was my own journey of discovery to try and um, figure out a solution. So I had um, over a dozen immune and autoimmune related diseases. And uh, it really started in graduate school, sort of halfway through my PhD. Um, I was stressed. I was trying to maintain weight loss by running marathons. So I was putting a lot of physical stress on my body. And I had a major health crisis. Um, at, at the time, I basically, you know, within a few months had the development of um, asthma and allergies and psoriasis and the autoimmune disease that's my chief complaint, which is lichenplanus. I gained a ton of weight. I ended up with metabolic syndrome. And 
I really struggled with my health throughout the rest of my PhD um, and both of my postdoctoral fellowships. So when it came to um, having a child and I had a relatively complicated first pregnancy and um, I really felt that I was not a good candidate for finding balance between a high-powered academic career and my priorities as a mother. And that was in large part influenced by the struggles I was having with my health. I think that if I had you know, been enjoying very good health at the time, I probably would have tried to figure out how to be this great big career mom. Um, and at the time, it just made more sense to me to take time off of my academic career and really focus on being a mother. And what that actually allowed me to do was actually focus on my own health and focus on my stress level and get more sleep, although neither one of my daughters were sleepers, so it wasn't actually that much Mm. sleep. Um, But that was the beginning, really, of me starting to put the pieces together in terms of my own health. And I successfully lost weight again. I lost weight in my early 20s, had this major health crisis, gained it all back again, lost it again in my early 30s. Um, And I had this realization that uh, losing weight was not making me healthier. And it was one of those big moments that was very influential in my life because up until that point in my life, I'd always equated health with being thin. But I was losing weight and I was having major skin problems. I was having uh, major problems with irritable bowel syndrome and asthma and allergies and frequent migraines and anxiety attacks. And it really felt like the wheels were falling off the cart and I couldn't explain it because I was losing weight successfully. And so I started researching through the idea of food sensitivities. Um, I think it was my mother had mentioned one day that she had read that eczema was linked to egg sensitivity. And I thought, well, I have eczema in addition to all these other things. Maybe I have an allergy to eggs. And then I read somewhere else that it could be a wheat allergy or a dairy allergy. So I I started just with the internet trying to figure out if there was specific food allergies that were associated with lichen planus. And I happened on an article on uh, Lauren Cordain's website, thepaleodiet.com, that was specific about lichen planus. And it's it's interesting. It's not actually that uncommon of an autoimmune skin condition. It's not as common as psoriasis, for example. Um, But there's this sense, I think, even that other sufferers of lichen planus have is that it is very unusual because we never seem to encounter other people with this disease. You know, now with the internet, it's a little bit easier to find um, people with with common experiences, but it can feel very, very isolating. So for me to hit on this article that was specific about the paleo diet for lichen planus was such an important moment for me. And it started my research into exactly what a paleo diet was. Um, And I, funnily enough, as much as I am the type of person to make these, you know, broad sweeping changes in my life, um, and I tend to do them just by jumping in with both feet, I also tend to do them after researching researching them very thoroughly. So I actually read everything that I could find basically for free on the internet for about three months before I decided I was going to try this paleo diet thing. Hmm. And it was such a profound change for me. 
um, within two weeks, I was able to go off of six prescription medications, um, one of which I had been on for 12 years. And so I, uh, even though I then had to continue to experiment um, actually with the paleo diet, and that's what got me into like the autoimmune paleo diet, um, even though I continued to have to, to troubleshoot in order to continue to improve my health, I had such a dramatic improvement, especially in my digestive um, symptoms, that I became this like crazy zealot. And I started talking like everybody's heads off wherever I went. I would get my hair cut and I would talk the entire time about how great this paleo diet thing is and how nobody should eat wheat or dairy. And I, I became so enthusiastic that I needed an outlet. And because I was a stay-at-home mom and I was already really struggling, I think, with the identity of being a stay-at-home mom but having a you know, PhD in medical biophysics and being a medical researcher, you don't meet very many stay-at-home moms who have that um, level of, of education who are also very, very successful in their careers. And so I was already sort of struggling with missing science in my life. Um, and then I was f- found this like amazing thing that – kind of fed into my science background because I was using a lot of my knowledge about inflammation and how the immune system works and how epithelial cells work to be able to understand what I was reading. And so about two months into paleo, I I turned to my husband, I said, what do you think of the idea of me starting a blog? And he, I think, was so sick and tired of hearing me talk about the paleo diet. He was like, that's great. That's great. Do it. I think you should totally do it. And, um, and so I think four days later, I launched the Paleo Mom, and it really connected with people. And I think it connected with people in a large part because of the balance of you know, explaining science, which is something I really enjoy doing, but then also recipes and practical how-to. And I'm very honest about my struggles in addition to my successes. So I don't hide the fact that sometimes it's hard. Um, I don't hide the fact that I have a body that's just uncooperative and sometimes I'm doing everything right and my body still decides that it's just going to, you know, flare and and do whatever. And so I I share those experiences and it grew so quickly that it really ended up filling a void in my life that I almost didn't really recognize was there. And it's allowed me to have that connection with science and with research while also – I think, you know, involving this this new passion for me, which is understanding the role that nutrition and lifestyle has in health. And then also I get to be artistic and I get to like draw little stick figures and I get to do technical illustrations and um, and I get to kind of draw on all of my skills. So it's it's sort of a, a, a journey that has um, a lot of different aspects that all came together to make this, I, I think, really my calling. Sarah, um, thank you so much for sharing your story. And um, it's, it's just so evident, especially with uh, the, the drawings that you do and the, and the cartoons. Um, it's so evident that you've, that you've found your passion and, and that you're uh, incorporating it all together. And I had to, I had to laugh when you were talking about uh, being a, a, a zealot, I think you said, uh, somebody yes. who just really goes for it. I think everybody who's had uh, success from stepping into paleo can uh, attribute to being a bit of a paleo evangelist where uh, everybody, everybody's ear gets, um, gets chewed off about it. And um, 
I also picked up there, you said about you, when you feel like you're doing everything right and that still that it's just not all coming together the way that you envisioned. And so my question is, um, in the in the paleo space, and what does the what what are you seeing with regards to commonality or, or what the science is saying are some of the most common foods that still uh, can cause um, less than ideal results with people's paleo? So, what are paleo foods that can still cause uh, people to not not be living in optimum health? That's an that's an excellent question, um, and it's a question that I think is really relevant for people with immune and autoimmune diseases. Um, there's two foods that really jump out at me as being the, the major culprits, um, and the first and dominant is vegetables from the nightshade family. So that's tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, uh, chilies, um, spices like red pepper and cayenne and paprika, and these are foods that we are so used to incorporating into our meals extremely frequently and especially um, spices like paprika is very, very difficult to avoid. It basically completely removes the rest of the prepackaged foods that otherwise would be considered paleo. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, it's a real challenge to cut those foods out, but they have um, a, lectins in them. Uh, so we're sort of familiar with um, lectins as being, you know, a, a potentially problematic substance in grains and legumes. Um, it's not that all lectins are bad. It's based that lectins are just a, a class of proteins that bind with carbohydrates. But there's subsets of of these lectins in grains and legumes called prolamines and agglutinins that have properties that are either really bad for gut health or stimulate the immune system. And it turns out that nightshades also have um, lectins that stimulate the immune system. And then beyond that, they have another class of compounds called glycoalkaloids, which stimulate the immune system. And actually, for example, tomatoes, both um, tomato lectin and alpha-tomatine, one of the types of glycoalkaloids in tomatoes, have been investigated for use as adjuvants in vaccines. So we add adjuvants to vaccines in order to ramp up the immune system because whatever um, antigen we put in vaccines is dead. So we put like dead virus in a vaccine or inactivated virus in a vaccine. And then we have to put something in it to ramp up the immune system because it's not the infection itself ramping up the immune system. So we put in adjuvants. And in tomatoes, there's at least two compounds which make pretty good adjuvants. And so when you're eating that and you're a sensitive person – um, that can ramp up the immune system. And so they're probably the number one food that doesn't work for people. When people fall, um, follow a paleo diet and then they don't find that immediate success, um, which happens. I mean, and it's, it's sort of the elephant in the room. We don't often talk about it, but there is a fairly large percentage of people who go paleo and they just don't see that resounding success. And one of the common culprits um, is nightshades. Another really common culprit is nuts. And nuts are interesting because you you can be allergic, you can be sensitive. They do have um, high phytic acid content, which can be a gut irritant in, in too large of quantities. They're also really high in omega-6 polyunsaturated fats. And with nuts, it seems to be... Not so much a whether or not 
they're in a person's diet unless they're sensitive and then clearly there's a problem, but it's the volume of them. And so it's very, very easy to overdo nuts because they're delicious. They definitely elicit like a high dopamine response. I mean, for me, they're like a really high reward value food. So I find it really hard to stop eating them. And I know I can't possibly be the only one. No way. Um, Definitely and not. so, right. So they're they're a high um, food reward value food. They're very very energy dense, um, and almost all nuts are really high in omega six polyunsaturated fats. And one of the things that we do in a paleo diet is we go out of our way to change our cooking fats to not use these high omega six fat, um, you know, vegetable oils, and we go out of our way to get grass-fed meat so that we're getting, you know, this great balance of omega-3s to omega-6 fats. And then we sit and we eat an entire jar of almond butter. And it completely undermines all of that other effort we're doing to balance omega-3s and omega-6s. So I see nuts as being a culprit, but it's not so much, um, you know, huge problematic, you know, immune stimulators in nuts the way it is in nightshades. In nightshades, I mean, for me, I, I recover more quickly from a bite of bread than I do from a bite of tomato. Like it's, mm. it's just that severe of a reaction for me. But with nuts, I think it's a dose. I think it's the part where it makes it really, really difficult to balance omega-3s if you're eating a lot of them. Um, the fact that they're energy-dense foods and that can really push us into hypercaloric diets very easily, especially because they're high food reward foods. And there's a lot of problems with hypercaloric diets. I mean, we know that that's the number one thing that um, increases your risk of cardiovascular disease is eating too many calories. Um, and it really, you know, we, we can debate all day long if it matters what type of calories they are. But the thing that we do know is too many calories is a problem and too many calories you know, clearly increases your risk of metabolic syndrome. And so, um, and so I think that's where nuts are a problem. It's, they're sort of a, a difficult food to moderate. And so, Sarah, what about eggs? Because I was expecting them to come into the equation when you're talking about foods people react to. Where do they sit, you think? Uh, I guess they would be next, probably, <laughs> after nuts. Um, yeah. eggs, eggs are interesting because a pasteurized egg yolk is what, probably one of the most nutrient-dense foods that we could be consuming. And it has some really compelling nutrition that is not necessarily easy to get from other foods unless you're eating a diet that's particularly rich in organ meat and seafood. And so uh, egg yolks are, I think, a really great food, but egg whites are not. Um, and it's it's really interesting that we've got these two foods, <laughs> two different um it's almost like two different foods packaged in one egg. So egg whites have um, a uh, enzyme in them called lysozyme, um, which is part of the egg's defense strategy. So it's part of what protects the eggs from getting uh, infected by bacteria. And we produce lysozyme. I mean, lysozyme is part of our immune system and our defense mechanism as well. But there's a sort of a difference between the lysozyme that we produce and then eating it as a food. And one of the things that happens is this lysozyme acts as a carrier. So lysozyme is very good at getting into the body, and that probably reflects a little bit of, of just the, the chemical properties of lysozyme and how it interacts with the molecules that are um, the sort of top layer of molecules that form the, the barrier between the inside of the gut and the inside of the body. Um, and it also is probably designed that way because it's part of 
our own immune responses. So it's it's not really that foreign of a protein itself, but when it's in the gut, it it binds to it can bind to other egg proteins, but it can bind to things. It it's one of its main properties is to break apart the cell membranes of uh, gram-negative bacteria. And one of the things that will happen is it will hold on to these membrane proteins. And we've probably heard the word endotoxin, which is a membrane protein from a gram-negative bacteria. So when lysozyme holds on to that, and then it's really good at getting into the body, it actually carries these things into the body. And it can carry proteins from other foods. It can carry toxins. Um, it can carry things like like endotoxin or other proteins from bacteria that might be just hanging out in the gut. They could be pathogens, but they could be normal residents of the gut, but they're supposed to be in the gut and not in the body. And so what can happen, and sort of, again, this is like sensitive individuals. This is people with, um, you know, probably not really healthy gut. So they've probably got a little bit of leaky gut going on. They've got an immune system that's more sensitive to being stimulated. So people with chronic illness, so autoimmune diseases or immune diseases or other forms of chronic illness are probably the people who are more sensitive. And it basically, it, it's it's like a backpack and you stuff all these like extra bad proteins inside the backpack and then you bring the backpack into the body where the immune system's waiting. And, uh, and then it can stimulate the immune system. And so there's this um, dichotomy between how the egg white can potentially cause problems, but how the egg yolk is such a you know healthful part of the, the yolk, which is why egg white omelets drive me crazy. <laughs> You're throwing out the wrong part of the egg. It should be egg yolk omelets. Oh, I think I just started a new thing. Nice. Um, <laughs> uh, Sarah, I feel like I just had a bit of a science class. That was awesome. You, you definitely are over it with the research and it's, it's brilliant. But I'm going to sort of steer you in a slightly different and maybe a little bit less scientific direction now because I really want to ask sure. you, you know, one of the things I love about your blog is you really do, as you said, go into the challenges you've had and talk a lot about those. And so I noticed one of the first ones you spoke about, and I know this is one that a lot of our paleo listeners will relate to, is you spoke about your skeptic husband and how you dealt with that. So I'd love you to share sort of a little bit of info about that with our fans. So um, about right around the time that I started the blog, I also decided that I was going to transition my family and that this was going to be part of the experience that I was going to blog about. And my husband said something to the effect of, but I'm not giving up bread and toast. Um, and cereal. So he's and, like you know, paleo he, with bread, toast, and cereal. Right. <laughs> Would be not paleo at all. But he doesn't even remember saying that now. And I'm like, well, I blogged about it, so clearly you said it. <laughs> I have It's like writing in a diary. Um, and he, he's like, no, no, I was on board from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. No, we have selective no. memory, Sarah. Yeah. yeah. So um, I, I definitely have noticed. I, I think, you know, for him, he – when he said he wasn't going to give up his bread or his cereal, what he meant is that he still wanted those flavors and those comfort foods. He, st- he was worried that food was going to be either difficult because my husband does not cook at all, but just at all. He might scramble eggs, but I won't eat them. Oh, um, and so, uh, you know what? I, I made this decision very early on in our relationship that I was okay with not eating food he cooked and that I would just be the cook and then I would be able to eat good food and it would be fine. <laughs> he washes the dishes. It's a great trade. So, um, so in, in part, that was a benefit for me because he had to eat whatever I made. Um, but it was also a challenge because he was really 
um, he didn't want to have to work. He didn't want to have to work to make his lunch. And he was quite used to packing um, sandwiches, you know, sandwich and an apple in his lunch. He didn't want to have to do something that was going to be hard. Um, and he was really, I think, um, he was really stuck on, you know, losing these staple foods. And so what ended up happening was, especially very, very early on in my family's paleo journey, is I was doing a lot of baking with, you know, almond flour. And I was doing a lot of like, you know, paleo adaptations of muffins and cookies and bread, you know, chicken fingers. And I was trying to find ways to make those without gluten and without dairy. And what we did was we basically, you know, went gluten-free. It was sort of the first thing. I, and I was completely paleo and we didn't have very many legumes in the house because that wasn't a big part of our diets pre-paleo anyway. Um, but then other than that, it was sort of gluten-free. And we had a lot of, you know, gluten-free waffles and gluten-free breakfast cereal around. And then I started making more paleo adaptations, which, you know, typically used a lot, a lot of nuts. Um, and that went over fairly well. And then I think everyone in my family started to feel better. So what happened with my oldest is she had had a chronic constipation for two years before, uh, the family went paleo and a month after just being gluten-free, I mean, before we even did the rest of it, she was off, uh, she had been on Miralax for two years and she was off Miralax within a month of going gluten-free and started sleeping through the night for the first time in her life. She was four years old. Um, and then my youngest, we had actually at that point uh, already had, I think, two out of three sleep studies at uh, the children's hospital. We'd had uh, three laryngoscopies. Um, we'd had a uh, two swallow studies and an upper GI series because she had obstructive sleep apnea. And it was not caused by the, the more typical culprits, which are um, tonsils and adenoids. Those were fine. And she didn't have a hiatal hernia. She didn't have any of these like normal things that would cause this. And what we ended up figuring out in large part because of how it went away when we went gluten-free and dairy-free for her. It turns out she's extremely sensitive to dairy. Um, but we, it turns out we found out that she has a small malformation in her larynx where her vocal cord bands are slightly tight. And it puts a little curl on her epiglottis. And she happened to have these really exaggerated acid reflux reactions to gluten and casein. And so when she would have this acid reflux, it would inflame her larynx so that that pressure on her epiglottis was more. So that when she was in REM sleep, the epiglottis would flop over and block the trachea. How, I mean, that was just the most ridiculous thing to have to figure out. Um, and it required, you know, like five different specialists and it was a gluten-free, casein-free diet meant that a year and a half worth of trying to figure out why this girl couldn't breathe while she was sleeping. And it turned out that, you know, once we removed these things that were causing this exaggerated acid reflux reaction, it went away. So we started sleeping, which I mean, for the first time in years and, we all started getting more energy. My kids' behavior got better. And so it was this slow process. I think, you know, my kids were feeling better and I was still doing, you know, a lot of foods to accommodate them. Um, And then they would feel really, really bad if they had, say, a cupcake at a birthday party. And that would help 
emphasize that these foods were not good for them. We started talking about being allergic, even though it wasn't technically an allergy. We sort of used that that language. And I think my husband had this moment where, you know, he would sort of be paleo at home and I would pack his lunch and he would just eat the food that I made and it was delicious food. So he was fine. But then if he went out, you know, if he went to a conference or if he went out for a meal with a, you know, visiting professor, my husband's professor, um, he would just eat whatever. And that was fine for him for a little while. And then there was some space where he just, there was nothing. There was, there was no meals out. There was no conferences. And then he had um, some Thai food, which probably wouldn't have even have been particularly high gluten, but he felt incredibly ill for hours afterwards. And I think that for him was one of the big turning points. So, you know, really, you know, he, he, he was never going to stick his foot down and he never undermined me by going out and buying, you know, Oreo cookies or, you know, some of the stories that I've heard that other spouses have done. Um, But what really got him on board, I think, was seeing that food could still be good and seeing the health improvements that we were all having. And my health was continuing to improve. The kids were finally sleeping through the night. And I think he was, you know, had more energy. And I think he was feeling better himself, even though for him there wasn't a compelling health reason to bring him to paleo. I think he still noticed that he felt better with a more nutrient-dense diet. Yeah, that's um, fantastic, Sarah, and definitely something that we can all relate to. Um, I don't think it's uncommon to hear similar stories from other people that are starting out on their journeys, and there's always the questions of, why do I feel funny, you know, after being paleo for so long? Shouldn't have I felt that way when I first started? But um, we've obviously spoken about um, the food and we've touched on sleep a little bit. I know in your book um, you also mentioned that there are other lifestyle factors that if we don't take into account, they can completely undermine all of our efforts um, that we're making with our diet. Can you um, touch on some of those for us? Yeah, I think this is one of the things that's really wonderful about the sort of overall conversation that the paleo community is having now is we're starting to talk about lifestyle and the impact that lifestyle has in addition to diet because it really isn't just about food and when you're talking about somebody with an immune system that's in overdrive you can get you know you can make quite a lot of progress with changing diet but there's some really really big missing pieces to the puzzle if you don't also look at lifestyle factor and so sleep is huge um really an enormous uh challenge I think that we all face is stress and um, and part of that is that just our contemporary Western society has chronic stress built right in mm-hmm. and the choices that we as a society are making now are not conducive to low stress levels and stress has a really really profound effect on gut health and the immune system and brain health and the link between all of those things. And so 
if, you know, stress by itself, just being stressed and having high cortisol can cause a leaky gut, can affect the type of bacteria that are growing in our digestive tracts, um, can stimulate the immune system, and it can stimulate parts of the immune system while suppressing others. So not only do you have an overstimulated immune system that's attacking your body, say in an autoimmune disease or an immune disease like asthma, but you can also have an immune system that's completely useless when it comes to fighting infection, which is why you see like often asthmatics also tend to get chronic infections. Um, autoimmune disease patients will often complain that it takes them three, four, five weeks to get over a cold. And it's because part of the immune system is stimulated and part of the immune system is suppressed. And basically what you end up is a, a system that just doesn't work. And so stress is, is really, really important. And having cortisol that's too high or cortisol that's too low or cortisol that is, you know, cortisol goes up and down during the day. So if your cortisol goes up and down at the wrong times, that can also cause problems. Um, having this entire symphony of hormones that are supposed to ebb and flow with, with the time of day, like melatonin, these are all the circadian rhythm hormones, they all have links with the immune system. Your hunger hormones have links with the immune system. So how you time your meals can impact the immune system. Um, and many of these hormones are regulated by sleep and by activity. So getting enough sleep helps regulate these hormones and therefore helps regulate the immune system. And getting lots of low intensity or moderate intensity activity can help regulate these hormones and getting really high intensity activity can actually make it worse. So the other thing that we know is that being overactive and overtraining can cause a leaky gut can and cause um, all of these hormones to get out of whack. It can cause stress um, and it can directly stimulate the immune system and decrease, you know, we see things like um, increased susceptibility to infections in um, athletes. We see things like uh, longer wound healing times, and that's all related to um, the impact that overtraining has on the immune system. So there's a huge balance between diet and lifestyle, and there's also a huge connection. So we know, for example, that eating a lot of omega-3, the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids that are in seafood, can help blunt the stress response. So it means that you don't have as much cortisol spike when something stressful happens to you. So that there's this link between having the right kinds of nutrition and being able to regulate all of these hormones that we would typically think of as regulating by lifestyle. So one of the things that I've really tried to do with my book is bring all of these pieces together and show how they're connected. Because for me, in my own you know, my own journey to health, it was really important to get the lifestyle factors dialed in. And, and so important, in fact, that the stress of finishing the book ended up undermining my health. And even though my diet was fantastic and I was following all of my diet recommendations, I wasn't following my own lifestyle recommendations and I wasn't getting enough sleep and I wasn't taking time to, to do sort of stress relieving activities. And, you know, I ended up having you know, pretty big health crisis in December, pretty much as soon as the book went to the printer because of that piece of the puzzle. And so I'm glad I wrote about it because I think it's really important for people to understand that we get, we can get a really, really long way with food, but it's not just about what we 
eat. It's also about how we choose to live. Mm, that's really powerful, Sarah. And we're really glad that you wrote about it as well. I'm so sad that um, we're running out of time for today, but maybe we can even get you back on the show and we can chat more about that another time. Absolutely. I would love to. That would be awesome. Well, um, that is it for today. But if, like me, you're just firing up and you need to get your hands on more fantastic information, Go and sign up for the Paleo Mums free newsletter. And if you're new to Paleo, get a free Paleo Quick Start Guide while you're there. Um, so this and more resources than you can sink a ship with are all available at www.thepaleomum.com. And for our Australian listeners, that is M-O-M for mum. So honestly, there is something for everyone at this site, from those of us looking to expand our paleo repertoire to the paleo newbies, uh, the people that are tell me all of the facts first, people, the recipe hoarders, and the cooks and the paleo parents. Do yourself a favor, bookmark this website straight away. Um, so today's episode has definitely reconfirmed that paleo is about way more than just what you put in your mouth. To find out more about what triggers disease in your body, which foods heal your body, how to regulate your immune system through diet and how to manage sleep, stress and physical activity to promote optimal health, go and get a copy of Sarah Ballantyne's brilliant book, The Paleo Approach. It is a comprehensive and scientifically backed guide um, to manage your autoimmunity and so, so, so much more, guys. So that's available at Amazon.com. Sarah, thank you very much for uh, coming on to the show today and um, thank you for arming me with the information that I need. I'm going to ring my mum after the show and tell her that she shouldn't have told me off for just picking the egg yolks out of the eggs when I was little. <laughs> so, That's wonderful. <laughs> you can also find Sarah on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Pinterest. Search for The Paleo Mum, that's M-O-M, and keep your eyes peeled because we will post this on our Facebook page for you all to access also. Finally, um, I thought I'd leave you with an inspiring proverb that Sarah shares with us in The Paleo Approach. She um, sprinkles awesomeness throughout her book in the form of quirky little cartoons and comments and quotes. This one is, from the bitterness of disease, man learns the sweetness of health. As always, we hope you all enjoyed the show as much as we did. Make sure you tell us what you think. And until next week, like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. Share your story and help to grow the Paleo Tribe worldwide. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.